If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. Hello and welcome to our next episode of Clinical Conversations provided by the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Anda and I am a TMC member. I'm delighted to have an informative conversation today with uh, Dr Megan Perry, Infectious Disease Consultant in NHS Lovian and Senior Researcher at the University of Edinburgh with an interest in antimicrobial resistance. Today, we're going to talk about investigating and managing patients with pyrexia of unknown origin, a challenging topic in clinical practice. Welcome, Dr. Perry, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much, Anda, for having me. I'm delighted to talk about PUOs. I think as an ID doctor, it's both can be the most satisfying and the most frustrating condition to work with. Thank you. So without any further ado, I'll uh, start asking you some questions, Dr. Perry, and as you've alluded already to it, can you tell us a bit about the clinical diagnosis of pyrexia of unknown origin? Uh, we know it was first described and defined back in 1961, and this clinical syndrome continues to pose diagnostic challenges. Can you please summarize the definition of this condition and how has it changed over time? Thanks, Ander. Um, so the clinical diagnosis back when it was first defined was three weeks of fever above 38.3 that evades diagnosis. Initially, this used to include at least one week of hospitalization. Diagnosis had not been come to. However, this has been challenged in subsequent review articles and opinion pieces since then, where the duration of the hospitalization has gone from seven down to three days, and then more latterly, it was just suggested that the fever had evaded diagnosis through appropriate and intelligent workup, which I think is a bit more of a practical way of thinking about it now, considering that we got GPs have got more diagnostic tests at their fingertips, and then hospital doctors, we've got much easier access to more definitive imaging than, than we had, let's say, 10 or 20 years ago. I think it's important to mention a couple of things just at this point. There's many people write uh, when they admit patients from uh, in acute medicine sepsis of unknown origin. And um, that can sometimes get muddled up with pyrexia of unknown origin. And the sepsis of unknown origin is just a, a placeholder. It's just, it's when patients come in with an overwhelming infection with an inflammatory response that we don't know where the source is. And quite often that smaller mystery is solved with a little bit of imaging and a, and a couple of blood cultures, whereas often patients with true pyrexia of unknown origin require a much more prolonged investigation. The other thing I did also want to mention is that the measurement of fever should be something so incredibly simple, um, but actually it's often not completed by patients. It's a, quite a subjective symptom in itself. And Sometimes in our ID clinics, we're referred people with night sweats, but they turn out to have a hormonal diagnosis rather than that the patient actually having a fever of itself. And one of the things we often get patients to do is to keep a fever diary. 
That's a very interesting point. So the fever per se, the, the, the measurement should be part of the di diagnosis. Yes. So what is then the clinical approach in assessing these patients if we talk about pyrexia of a known origin? Now, what, are there any particular findings in the clinical history that you pay attention to and any specific questions that we should be asking? Thanks. That's a good question. And I think the key aspect is who is the patient sitting in front of you? And that really guides the approach to the patient. So if you have a standard member of the population with no known immunocompromise, then you will approach the patient differently than if you have somebody who's been in hospital for a while, or if they've, they're known to have neutropenia, or if they're known to have immunocompromise or immunosuppression um, secondary to medications that they take. But generally, whoever that person is who's sitting in front of you, the most important thing is the history, the clinical approach to your history. And you need to be really methodical. Many people, when they hear that you're an infectious diseases doctor, they're like, oh, like House, you know, that uh, he's so funny. And I don't know whether you've ever seen it, Ander, but they, you know, he plucks diagnosis Hugh Laurie, and he's a sort of misanthropic genius. Yeah, yeah. And pluck diagnoses out of the blue. And unfortunately, in real world, infectious diseases medicine, we actually just have to be really thorough and methodical in what we go through. And we often, like the patients can be just be quite overwhelmed by the level of detail that you can go into. For example, with, with a travel history, you want to know where a patient has lived all the way through their lives. Have they lived in Hong Kong or Malaysia or the Sudan? Or have they lived only in Scotland? And, you know, where they lived at age four could have an impact on the diagnosis that you ultimately make. So and then in terms of just the presence of a fever, it's not as simple as that. It, when does the fever happen? Is it there all the way through the day? Or is it just does it just happen in the evening when you're not having your natural circadian rhythm of your burst of steroids in the morning? Or... Is that fever episodic? Does it come for four or five days and then go away again? How is the patient between the episodes of fever? Are they losing weight? Are they lethargic? Are they fatigued? Are they able to go back to their normal levels of activity? And so getting that detail around the fever definitely helps to guide your investigations. We take just a standard thorough history in terms of medical and surgical history and what particularly important to know what drugs they're taking whether they've recently started taking any new medications recreational drug use and then occupational environmental sexual exposure like so much can be found from the history there was one pyrexia well I put that in inverted commas pyrexia of unknown origin that I was referred and uh, the patient had a neutrophilia sweats and abdominal pain and in fact, he had lead poisoning because he had been stripping back multiple layers of paint in his boss's house and not wearing an appropriate mask. And uh, the haematologist did the diagnosis for us on a blood film. So, you know, all of that, it wasn't enough just to know that he was a painter. You know, we had to, to go into the detail of that occupational exposure that he was having to, to come to a diagnosis. That's interesting. The history seems to be a proper diagnostic tool, basically, you're telling me. Definitely. And I think what's also important is that you need to revisit the history. So quite often, these poor patients, if we don't find a diagnosis um, in the kind of first raft of investigations, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, 
they have a very prolonged contact with ourselves and uh, whilst we're continuing the investigation. And you do need to just revisit that history again and again each time and make sure you evaluate any new symptoms. I had a patient once who went through a whole raft of investigations. Only about probably three or four months in, did he start complaining of both shoulder girdle and pelvic girdle pain, which had never been an issue for him before. And then he was accepted and diagnosed by the rheumatologists with uh, polymyalgia rheumatica. But that symptom was never there to start with. So revisiting the history is very important. Thank you. So you've alluded a lot uh, towards kind of the why differential diagnosis behind this syndrome of pyrexia unknown origin. We've also spoken a bit about investigations. So can I ask you to summarise for us what baseline investigations do you consider when you get a referral of a patient with pyrexia unknown origin once you've taken that thorough history? Yeah, just briefly mention, and the investigation is also guided by our examination, which is incredibly thorough and top to toe and looking in every single orifice and under every single um, skin flap, as it were. So that really helps to to guide the investigations too. So I think the, the, the first set of tests really are quite often what is done in an acute receiving unit or I can often be done by the GP with an exception of being able to do blood cultures. So just for blood count, usernees, LFTs, CRP, ESR, all of that and clotting with a CK, you need a chest x-ray and ultrasound abdomen to start off with as fairly non-invasive um, investigations. Make sure you have a urine dipstick, as we know that really um, can be a good clue to any kind of vasculitic or renal um, process that is going on. And then getting cultures off antibiotics is, is incredibly important. And this comes back to something which we may um, touch on multiple times, is that quite often empirical antibiotics are given either in primary care or in the acute medicine department because people see a fever and think that we need to give antibiotics. And that can really make it um, much more difficult to see the pattern of fever, to be able to interpret, you know, the response. Is it cyclical in nature or has it just responded to antibiotics? And we don't know that if antibiotics have, have been started. And then it's very difficult to culture once patients have been um, started on antibiotics. So that's a real challenge. So we don't advise empirical antibiotics, except in a couple of very specific situations. Once those baseline tests have been done, then further more specific investigations are much more directed by the history and the examination. But importantly, all tests that are performed have to be pre-test probability before you do the test. So what specialist infectious disease investigations do you perform in, in these patients? And also I wanted to, was patients get all this assessment, thorough assessment, are they, is this done in hospital or on an ambulatory? So I think um, we get referrals, it's one of our most common reasons for referrals to infectious diseases is a GP picking up somebody with fever and high inflammatory markers. Sometimes when a GP picks that up, they're punted into hospital via acute medicine um, straight away. And it may be that once they come to the ID unit, we're able to do a couple of investigations, um, which I'll talk about shortly. And then, and then we're able to discharge them and continue to follow them up as an outpatient. I think involving other specialties 
over and above ID is guided by the likely cause. But we quite often end up acting as a coordinator because there's not quite enough evidence for it to be a rheumatological condition or a hematological condition because they don't have the right tissue yet or other specialists haven't won't accept them until there's more evidence. And so we continue to hold on to those patients until we can gather the evidence enough for making a diagnosis or trying empirical treatment of whichever path you end up going down. So would you would you get involved, would you advise to get involved quite early, say from a primary care point of view or acute medicine when these patients come through the door, would you advise that they should be referred to you quite early and then it's kind of a multidisciplinary uh, management? I think that if you're not totally sure whether to start antibiotics or not, then and and you want some support in making that decision, then really get on the phone. Because it's actually what we do quite a lot in the ID unit is not give antibiotics. And it's just having that experience and that courage to not treat the, the fast heart rate and the high fever and hold on to it until you've got more information in terms of what could be causing that. Obviously, the approach is different depending if if you've got a well patient or if you've got a patient who is immunocompromised and HIV patient or somebody with a liver transplant or a renal transplant, you know, we would have them in much sooner and definitely continue the investigation and management until we knew exactly what was going on, whereas a patient that is well, otherwise, we quite often will continue investigations as an outpatient. Thank you very much, Dr. Perry. And that's very, very informative. So just to summarise what we're discussing so far, I was wondering if you can give us a kind of breakdown of common causes of pyrexia of unknown origin. Thanks. And uh, interestingly, and frustratingly for ourselves and for the patient, the most common cause of fever in a non-immunocompromised patient group is unknown. So we never find the reason why this patient has a fever. And patients really struggle with that. And it's really important to talk about that with a patient near the beginning when, you know, when the first raft of investigations haven't really pulled anything up to say, we might never find the reason why this is happening, but that's okay. And the prognosis of patients who we never find the cause of the fever is actually quite good. Like, it, you know, they've got a normal life expectancy and it just resolves of its own and it just becomes this mysterious time in their lives where they had a fever. So following that, the biggest causes are infective up to about a third inflammatory, up to about a third neoplastic, up to about a fifth, and then some more miscellaneous causes of, of fevers. And the main things I would say that we find in infection are probably infective endocarditis, culture negative, or ones with uh, like the HACEC organisms, You're, uh, people will remember about those, and then discitis, osteomyelitis, occult abscesses, and infected devices. All of those things that I've mainly mentioned, a lot of them will get picked up on a CT chest abdopelvis or, or more kind of targeted imaging using an MRI of what might be an affected area. So imaging, particularly in those kind of five top ID diagnoses, is, is really key for us in moving the case forward. And the easy access, as I've mentioned already, to a CT chest abdopelvis really, really helps that. 
our returning travellers obviously got a whole host of different potential infectious causes for PUO. Really important always to consider malaria, even if it's two years since somebody has been in a tropical area, some of the species of malaria can hang out for that long and cause issues. Things like tuberculosis, parasitic conditions like visceral leishmaniasis and schistosomiasis can cause fever for more prolonged period of time. And then when we look at our more immunosuppressed patients, then we have another whole host of differing types of organism that cause what we would call an opportunistic infection. We look at patients with HIV and with transplant. We have, as I said, very aggressive investigations looking for things like tuberculosis, non-typhoid salmonella, a wide range of different viruses, particularly Epstein-Barr and cytomegalovirus, but also the herpes simplex viruses. We look at pneumocystis, PJP, and then a wide range of, of fungal infections. And again, parasitic infections like leishmaniasis can kind of re-emerge when people become immunocompromised. And the difficult thing with the immunosuppressed patient is they can have quite common things which follow a very, very atypical course and also require different management. So that's a whole nother host of patients, but that generally doesn't have to be looked after by generalists, but it's definitely important to be aware particularly with patients who are on monoclonal antibodies and because monoclonal antibodies treatment is becoming so much more common these days. Interesting. So you, you mentioned a few subgroups of patients we should be aware of. So the immunocompromised patients. Any other subgroups? So I'm thinking particularly the elderly. Are there any particular considerations in these patients, both when thinking about the cause of their pyrexia, but also uh, their management? So the elderly are definitely, it can be much more challenging. And as we know, particularly much more challenging to to get a really clear history about exposures, um, you know, animals travel, all of that with memory problems, or that is a struggle. But then you definitely go through a much more methodical approach again, in terms of your investigations. And you may in that setting have to do more of a blanket set of investigations than you would do otherwise because you've got less clues from from the history. But a thorough examination as well is really key in that setting. With the elderly population, you are more likely, as you can imagine, for the fever to be from a neoplastic process than some of the other causes of, of a PUO. And actually, I mean, that brings me on to the non-infective causes of PUO. Um, I think there's particular tumours that are more likely to cause a fever, like renal cell tumours, pancreatic tumours, hepatic and colonic tumours and atrial myxoma. And of course, um, people with metastatic disease, you can have that oncological fever that is sometimes can be very challenging to not treat with antibiotics because you're so concerned about patients with metastatic fever, a metastatic disease being so immunocompromised that you want to cover for infection. So it can make management of those patients very difficult. And other non-infective causes, obviously, are this big group of kind of rheumatic, vasculitic, autoimmune and granulomatous disorders, which I'm which I'm not going to list, but are really important to consider and to consider early because of the fact that some of the blood tests can take quite a long time to come back. 
In terms of the miscellaneous causes, I would a couple of useful to mention. One I alluded to earlier is, is a drug fever, and that people will know about penicillin fever. You know that uh, about seven to ten days after starting penicillin, you can start to spike a fever with it, and people are concerned that you're not treating the infection properly. And um, but actually, the drug that you're using to treat the infection that is causing the issue. There are a couple of different culprits in terms of drugs that can cause a fever. And it's worthwhile considering that within your workup. And then otherwise, this is incredibly rare, but occasionally you can get a fictitious fever. So people telling you that there's a fever and then actually you're not finding any evidence of that. You're not finding any evidence of inflammation. And we have previously brought people into hospital when they're having a fever surge or whatever and and actually never really detecting that fever ourselves in the clinical environment and that's another scenario where a short inpatient stay can be really illuminating in terms of ongoing management of the patient. Thank you. So you you mentioned that you know the commonest cause of fever could actually be and something that we don't find out. What I'm just thinking, what's your threshold or how do you decide when to go into more in-depth investigation? Does everyone get a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis or an MRI spine? Or again, is it going back to that clinical assessment, your history and examination findings? How do you, how, what's your threshold? How do you decide who to investigate further and who to, where to stop? Sure. I think that's a really good question. And I think that it's changed over time. So like we've got, as I said before, we've got a much lower threshold to do a CT chest after pelvis. It's very hard to ignore fever and high inflammatory markers. And as I said before, quite often people give antibiotics. Then you stop the antibiotics and the fever and the inflammatory markers continue because they never responded to the antibiotics. And then you need to um, see how well the patient is. And then it becomes a conversation with the patient in terms of the ongoing investigation. So, for example, with when you're investigating a patient with infection, you, you will probably have a kind of baseline over on top of that first rung of investigations that we started with. And then if all of the microbiological cultures are negative, they're HIV negative, we've looked for our common causes of prolonged fever like EBV and CMV and all of that has come back negative. Toxoplasmosis has not been found and there's not a good epidemiological history for that. Then we would start thinking about further investigations, but we're not going to do a lumbar puncture on somebody who doesn't have any neurological symptoms. They've got no neck stiffness. They've got no history of neurological symptoms that make us think of Lyme disease. So we wouldn't go down a lumbar puncture just as just for the sake of looking in another bodily compartment. And if somebody doesn't have any evidence of back pain, uh, or no symptoms of back pain, then we're much less likely to do an MRI spine. Bone marrow biopsy as an investigation is more of a complicated one. Quite often our patients who've got prolonged inflammation will have some hematological abnormalities. They might have anemia of chronic disease, maybe a slightly elevated monocyte count, for example. And then there becomes a conversation with the hematologist in in terms of the risks and benefits of the procedure and what it might show us or not. So for example, 
you're much more likely to grow a non-tuberculous mycobacteria from a bone marrow sample or see the parasites of leishmaniasis from a bone marrow sample and you wouldn't be able to get that information as easily from peripheral blood. But it all depends on that history, that exposure and, you know, the probability, the pretest probability that this investigation is going to yield a result. And I think the difficulty for patients is that as we go further down into the minutiae of the investigations that they can have, the likelihood of this next investigation being positive and helpful decreases. And that can be very demoralising. So Dr. Perry, we spoke a bit about the investigations of pyrexia of unknown origin, and you've told us both about the baseline investigations that you consider, but also uh, more specialist tests, including radiology tests. I was wondering about the role of positron emission tomography, computed tomography, uh, because we see that done in some patients, but in clinical practice, how often do you consider and when do you consider this? Thanks, Andrew. That's a really good question. And I think it's really topical at the moment. I think that some centres have really quite easy access to PET-CT and and may even consider doing a PET-CT at the same time as that initial CT investigation that we get fairly easily of a CT chest abdo pelvis. What we find in clinical practice here is we will get to a point where we've done all of our infective investigations. We've done the inflammatory investigations, got all those vasculitic greens back and compliments and and there doesn't seem to be any sign of cancer anywhere. And then we try to access our PET CT at that point. And what our local radiologists will often turn around and say to us is that if we can't see anything on a standard CT, chest, abdo, pelvis, the pickup from a PET CT is, is really low. And so I think where it, it is really useful is where there's a nodule or a cyst or a small abnormality that they can't fully define how active that is on a standard CT. Then we can go to the radiologist and say, could this, what we've seen on our standard CT, be the cause of this patient's issues And will you consider looking to see how active this is on PET-CT? It can be useful, particularly for things like vascular grafts and such like to look for inflammation around that that you wouldn't see so actively in a CT chest abdopelvis. I think that landscape will change and we'll get to use them more often in the future, I hope. And you've already alluded to the fact that management of these patients is really finding the cause and empirical antibiotics can sometimes be detrimental. Is there any role of these or is there ever cases where you recommend treatment before finding a, a cause? If somebody's hemodynamically unstable, then it's you can't not give antibiotics. And so, you know, that is their blood pressure is dropping in front of you. And, you know, you've got to go down that that sepsis pathway. But these patients very rarely actually present in that way. If you've got somebody with a prolonged fever and you've got a high suspicion of disseminated mycobacteria, you might consider giving tuberculosis treatment. And in addition, the other very specific scenario is if you've got a concern about infective endocarditis 
you don't want to leave that patient without antibiotics. So if that suspicion is high enough, you know, you've got imaging to back that up, then you're much more likely to give empirical antimicrobial treatment at that point. I guess an, uh, the only other setting that you might consider if somebody's renal function is really deteriorating and you've had a situation where the GP has given antibiotics and they've muddied the waters and you don't have a, you can't say for certain whether or not they've got a urinary tract infection or not, then you might consider a short course of empirical antibiotics because you're losing an organ's function. Otherwise, we really try and avoid it until we have a positive result or a biopsy with a culture and an organism that will help to guide our management uh, duration of antibiotics. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing your uh, specialist knowledge in discussing this topic of pyrexia of unknown origin. What would be your take-home messages for clinicians uh, when investigating and assessing patients uh, with uh, pyrexia of unknown origin? I think, well, we all say the same thing, don't we? Is that it, it, it all comes back to the history uh, and that's all important. The more information that you can gather about a patient, the better. And I guess House has got something in there um, because he leaves the hospital and goes out to the patient's houses and finds out what their exposure is. But obviously that's not possible for us. But if we can really find out as much as possible about the patient's environment, that is helpful. Never forget malaria and HIV, always so, so important. And remembering also that serology is not black and white. If you've got a positive serology test, it doesn't mean that the patient has got that disease, particularly, you know, the infectious diseases serology that we work with. And I think the last thing would be, and particularly for our primary care colleagues, you know, is and acute medicine is counselling the patient. Sometimes the investigation of this condition is, is a very long and drawn out process without a definitive end and to keep their patience and the prognosis is good if we don't find the answer. Thank you very much Dr Perry for this uh, very uh, informative uh, chat. I really appreciate your time and I guess we all should do our detective work very well. Thank you. Thank you.